0: Hello and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. I'm Greg Hunter, recording from a Comics Journal Satellite Lab in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This podcast poses the same ten questions to a different cartoonist each episode, and on purpose. There's a rumor online that this conceit started when I took the wrong notebook to an interview. It's not true. It's not funny. Ed loose. Is our guest this installment. Ed earned an Ignatz nomination for Outstanding Artist this year alongside talents such as Emily Carroll and Jillian Tamaki. Earlier in the year, Fanagraphics Books released the first collected edition of Ed's long-running, self-published cult hit Wovable Oath, which the AB Club called delightful, heartwarming, hilarious, and occasionally raunchy. And it's true. This is a really singular book, and Ed does an awesome job of juxtaposing subcultures in a way you're not likely to find anywhere else. But before that, 2D Cloud, a publisher of Mary Naomi, Anna Bongiovanni, and others, is closing in on the end of a Kickstarter for its fall collection of books, a Kickstarter that stops in the first hour of October 14th. I'm happy to bring you a brief interview about the campaign with the publishers, Rain Hogan and Justin Scaris. We spoke on October 4th. Now, I'm tempted to recuse myself here, so let me be transparent. I am rooting for this crew. It's a Twin Cities operation, and thus has a line to my heart. But additionally, 2D Cloud is just an example of what's right with comics these days. An independent spirit, some really ambitious work, and, for a small publisher especially, work by many varieties of people. I'll let them tell you more. Alright, we're here with the 2D Cloud. You guys have heard of the figurative echo chamber that is the internet, but we're here recording in a literal echo chamber next to the 2D Cloud offices at Bowen Shaker Books in Minneapolis. Uh, Rain and Justin, can you both say something to Mike? Say your name so our listeners know who is speaking when.
1: Uh, hi, this is Rain.
0: And this is Justin. Alright, thank you. I want to make sure that I write this right. Because you two have a Kickstarter going on right now for 2D Cloud Books, and you have an advanced copies of the books in your fall line, you're filling orders already in advance of the campaign deadline, is that correct?
1: That's correct, yeah. Uh, last night we had a packing party, we packed up like uh, 86 or 88, I mean, I don't mean,
2: uh packages in are they're all going to go out tomorrow, it's kind of insane. Yeah, it's definitely a bold move, I would say. I mean, I think we're confident enough that we're going to meet our goal, so there's not a lot of, I think, real risk, but I think any time you commit to something like that, I mean, you know, we're still, we're not there yet, so... Yeah. It could it could, uh, be an interesting little uh, series of events we didn't come to yeah. in the past, but, you know, I think the like momentum is still steady enough that we'll, we'll get there, but, yeah, not definitely a common practice for... It. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know if I, I've I'm never sure. heard of uh, Kickstarter ever, ever uh having things shipped before it wrapped up, I think. I'm not for sh- I don't know for sure that this is the first, but I've never heard of one. Yeah, but, I have,
0: have you heard from Kickstarter HQ No
1: about I should ask, yeah. no, I should. I should ask uh oh maybe that'll like line us in hot water and will be like, You can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> to, like, close our
0: campaign <laughs> have to start an Indiegogo with about a five <laughs> days to <of> spare Yeah, i because going to piss out the Kickstarter Yeah <laughs> So why a Kickstarter for 2D Cloud at this moment in time?
1: Um, well, I think part of it, uh, stems from Like, the way that we package our books We package them via collections And, um the last one that we did, um, we just ran kind of off our, off our site, and, um, that, that did alright, but, like, uh, I think Kickstarter is, like, an amazing platform, it has, um, uh, I mean, it just has, like, everything that you would want in a platform, it's, it's legit, it's, uh, a lot of other labels like Fantagraphics, have have used it, mm-hmm. um, and, but yeah, it has like marketing and pre-orders are baked in, and, and uh, I just think it's an amazing platform, and I'm really excited that we have. Our, but I guess like as to why it's, uh, well, we need to become sustainable, and uh, there's a lot of expenses uh, in publishing in general, but also like we uh, recently announced that we with, with the Kickstarter we hooked up with the consortium. So we have a distributor, and because of practices, it's more money
2: is involved, and yeah, just need. I think it's just we're kind of trying to close a gap, and we describe this a bit in the Kickstarter where um, the way payments work for um, distributors, there's a bit of a delay. Right. So we're kind of putting a lot of this like upfront capital to do this first season of books, so but we won't see payment on that until six months later. So part of it. What we need to do to bridge that gap between this year and next is kind of do a little bit extra fundraising, things of that sort, just to um, help bridge that gap and get us there. So I think you know we're kind of at this really key transitional period for us. Where we're going from kind of a smaller press that just you know distributes through um, people like Tony Shen and John and people like that, and going to a larger scale shooter. Um, but there's definitely growing, growing pains as we've described it with that. So this kind of part of our efforts to help bridge that gap.
0: How much of the continued health of the publisher do you think about on a day-to-day basis, or or for that matter? Like, how many years and months into the future do you feel like you're able to project at the moment?
1: Um, I don't know, I mean, I guess like, we have plans for the
0: next couple of years,
1: but it's like, I mean, I don't know, everything is contingent upon everything. But, yeah, I mean, we definitely plan on being here for a long time. It's just uh, just a lot of work. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think regardless of how anything goes with, you know, our distributor and working with this, like, we're going to continue to exist in one shape or form, you know, whether we continue to grow and expand or we, like, okay, we're going to scale back in a few years or, and I don't think we have any plans to do at this point. We definitely want to grow and, you know, become more established be able to put out, you know, work by authors we've worked with and continue to work with new authors. So, um, yeah, like Graham said, we have a couple years worth of, um, books planned at this point. Um, but again, it's all coming into how things go. So there's definitely no absolutes when it comes to what we're doing, but, um, I mean, we're going to continue to exist one way or another. Let's talk about the beginnings of
0: the publisher for a second. Comics Journal editor Dan Nadel and mentioned your Kickstarter. He said he liked how the 2 Cloud brand is less important than the books. Uh, for example, he said, uh, I have no clue who owns it. Yeah, <laughs> now,
2: <laughs> He's that ball. <laughs> <laughs>
0: now, as it, someone who has the benefit of living in the same city as you guys, uh, I've thought of 2 Cloud differently, and I think you have a pretty uh, legible, fun dynamic. You know, Justin, I can probably say you were the softer spoken of the two. Yes. Rain uh, <laughs> Rain is rain the, is, rain is of the, the base, base. <laughs> I'm the <kind> of background for on spreadsheets. the self identified schemer <laughs> 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 probably a bad bad term to, for around wild wow, time uh, race yeah, lines yeah. very scheming so yeah <laughs> uh, so could you describe how you two met and then became to the be co-publishers um
1: like well how the, the company formed or like yeah, just general yeah um, well originally it was mm-hmm. uh Oh, it's like me, Justin, and Maggie, but uh, Maggie and I were more involved in the publishing side, and then eventually, um, and this was like before we, this was just like when we were like hobbyists, like uh, making a little anthology, and uh, it kind of grew from there, like we even put out like, uh, Maggie and I spent our honeymoon money on our first offset, uh, perfect round book, um, that, uh, didn't sell very well. <laughs> And that, like, uh, debuted at TCAF and Mocha and, um, in 2009, and uh, then, like, after a while, uh, Maggie was like, I just want to be an artist, and Justin, who had been helping out a bunch, like, and Justin's and I was friends, like, decided to step up, and uh, then we both kind of co-led it for a while, and, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean,
2: kind of titles responsibilities have shifted over the years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it definitely was initially Rain and um, Maggie were. And this is Maggie Umber? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cartoonist. So, yeah, I mean, they were definitely had plans to kind of work on a comics anthology. I obviously had known Rain for a long time. Um, so I was collaborating with him on some stories and helping with production stuff. And then, you know, Maggie uh, wanted to focus more on artwork, and I kind of helped, you know, become a little more involved. And so, yeah, responsibilities have shifted over time. But, yeah. I've been, I've probably been heavily involved since what like maybe 2011 2010 yeah so yeah. you know we're pushing about four or five years of it being mainly the two of us even you yeah. never had help from maybe mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. throughout the way. Yeah.
1: yeah and uh just this year like we brought on uh, Blaze and Melissa so we're like a, a fuller team and that was a part of uh, wanting to expand and be uh attractive to a distributor and uh and it, it worked because uh We have... Yeah, consortium
0: masks. Let's talk about the fall 2015 collection before we finish up. Yeah. The Necrophilic Landscape by Tracy Og is my favorite book in the fall line. Uh, It's funny, it's messy, it's weird, uh, and you can really feel the weight of intent behind it for how fun it is. Uh, Tracy's a very thoughtful storyteller. Now, I was surprised to find out after reading the comic itself that it's an unfinished work of sorts uh, that was started several years ago. So can you talk about the story behind that also?
1: Um, a little bit. Um, like I first uh, became familiar with her through uh, Blaze. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. To be honest, like some of that stuff, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, it was just... I, I saw an unfinished version of it. And uh, we... I really, really wanted to publish it. I, I thought it, like, it, uh, I think Tracy's brilliant, and I think, like, it made, like, a certain sense the way it already was, that it could be something. Um, so I worked with Tracy on putting together this edition, and, like, she kind of guided me on how to, she wanted certain things, and, um, I, I mean, I, I think it makes sense and feels like it's a finished thing mm-hmm. as this thing, and I don't know if, if she'll come back and, like, expand upon it at a later time or, or not, to be honest. Like,
0: How different was it when you first saw the comic compared to the printed version people can get from Kickstarter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, the, the I guess the version that I saw, like, I mean, it was um, largely, uh four panels a page. It was kind of, like, modeled differently. Um, it was also a two-color... And maybe we'll do an addition that's like that. I don't know. This uh, version just, like, I don't know, like... Uh,
2: it's also edited a little bit differently, too. Yeah. Outside of just the panel structure. Oh,
1: for sure, for sure. Choices. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, edits made mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of, like, the narrative. A lot of... Them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much that... Yeah, it's it's yeah. There's a lot of stuff cut, a lot of stuff uh, trimmed, and uh, stuff added, and but yeah, I think it reads coherent. And
0: now you mentioned Blaze a few times. This is Blaze Larmie, yes, cartoonist, I mean, yeah. comics, mystery person, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, the editor, alt comics number one, another part of the 2015 line. Right? Yeah. 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 It's.
1: I think he's just such a uh, amazing. Um, interviewer, like, he gets, like, a lot of, like, really good, like, content out of people. But, uh, part of this, so, Alt Comics uh, Magazine is, uh, companion to, uh, Alt Comics Movie. We're making a documentary, uh, about this scene and, like, kind of been filming for the past six months. I mean, it's just, like, at shows and outside of shows, but, I mean, and it's very, very early. I imagine it's gonna take us a while to do it, but, uh, Alt Comics Magazine is gonna come out quarterly. And uh, it's just going to be a way to kind of document our progress and what paths. And so this first one has interviews with uh, Aiden Coke and uh, Sad Maynard, uh, New,
2: and Lala Albert, and. Leo. Yep. Yep. And And so I think he modeled it after another um, anthology that comes out called Packet, where it's literally just a stack of pieces of paper stapled in the upper left corner there. Yep. Um, Yep. He's using that kind of as the format for it, and it's also going to tie into um, not only the uh, documentary that um, Brain and everybody's working on, but we're trying to kind of create a larger like umbrella for different types of manifestation. So there's like the Tumblr that exists for all comics. Um, Brain's been talking about maybe looking into it, doing kind of a reading series inspired by Brain Dream a little bit, yeah. and bringing like, that under really the All Comics banner. So we're trying to kind of try to take that general name and apply it to different like media and formats. Now, when you look at the
0: fall twenty fifteen collection together, uh Summer Chronicle by Dick Terrell is yeah. part of it as well. There's some nice uh I don't wanna say ethereal because that's an overused word, but there there's something to that. Sort of nostalgic also it seems like the almost right word for it. Yeah. But there's an interesting stream of consciousness look at, at being young.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I like uh I, mean, I don't know, I, I um I think Jake's work is just amazing. He has, like, uh... I don't know. Like, he did he did another... Like, one of his carnival books that he self-published, and it was, um, very... It had, like, a sketchbook quality to it. It's just, like, there's this level of intimacy and, uh, youth that were just... I guess, to me, were... Felt very rel- Uh, revel- Revelatory. And, um... And he's kind of, like... Like, so, when, uh, After each show, we usually have, like, a, uh post-show PDF, and he's... For the first three ones we did this year, like uh, Mocha, t and k he uh, provide the illustrations for that. I mean, meet some of the other artists, and you kind of get a, a sense of... I don't know, yeah, like his, his drawings are just like, really, really fun and light, and uh, yeah, the sketchbook quality to it, I enjoy.
2: I feel like narratively, it definitely has that kind of sense of, not confusion, but just way a party can kind of go where it's a little manic and chaotic you know and you know something might kind of start off and then trail off and like threads kind of in terms of like what people are doing all kind of intertwine I feel like you kind of get that sense from reading it um, yeah I feel, I feel like the narrative
1: like is guided on like just like just visually and narratively like a, like if you were just to like peruse a party or remember a party you yeah, know just little fragments yeah
0: mm-hmm. now if there is a podcast listener out there who Is semi-familiar, somewhat familiar, with your line of books who's on the fence about contributing to this Kickstarter, and you had the chance to say something to them directly, what would you tell them to
1: Um, get them on board? I think, I
0: think some of the
1: most exciting things that are happening in comics right now are, like, there's just a lot of, like, pockets that, uh, of... I don't know more exploratory narratives like things uh, work that has roots in like zines and uh, fine art and uh, more so than maybe traditional comics or comics history and I think that's like, some of the most exciting stuff that's uh, occurring right now and that's definitely something that we're very invested in um,
2: yeah I mean I'd say if somebody who's potentially on the fence of all of supporting this Kickstarter and I mean, if you're a fan of our work and what we publish and you kind of like what we're doing I mean we're only going to continue to do put out this kind of work and it's just going to become I think more risk taking to a certain extent I think there's you know some books we have coming out next year I think that at the scale we're doing them have not been done before so I think if you really like kind of the work we do contributing to this Kickstarter will you know enable us to continue to do that um I think we're definitely taking risks of some publishers of the size that we're becoming um May not be as open to, um, so I think if you like that just general approach to publishing, um, I think this is definitely really it's key that we make through this Kickstarter so we can kind of be at the scale we want to be. So,
1: yeah, you should totally do it. <laughs> All right, we'll <laughs> end on that. A couple of
0: That again was Rain and Justin from 2D Cloud. Their Kickstarter runs until the start of October 14th. Appropriately, we begin this next segment with some talk about how Ed Luce pays the bills. He's a great talker, and I think we had a great talk. This is Comic Book Decalogue The Money Issue. Thank you, as always, for listening. What are you a professor of? Uh,
3: comics, yeah. Oh, uh, cool. California College of the Art just started a uh, comics MFA. Oh, wow. Um, our 1st It's a three-year program, so our first uh, uh, graduating class just commenced uh, mm-hmm. this July.
0: Well, a three-year program? How does that break down year by year? It's
3: actually low residency, which means its um, we only meet once a year uh, in July for the month, and... Yeah, we're all together in the same space, and it's an intensive. It's like every day. Um, I teach the first only the first week. It's a uh, self-publishing workshop, so I teach them how to print their own comics out, a mm-hmm. single cut, uh, and then we also put on an exhibition of their work. It's in progress, but the, the theme of the show is being in progress. It's called Emanata, which is like the sweat lines that come out of uh, uh, oh, that's characters. Crazy. Yeah, it's like action, those unnameable little action icons uh-huh. that, that characters exhibit. But then uh, when the semester ends, we break down into uh, semester long mentorships. So what I do is I, I every two weeks Skype in with them or I meet with them if they're local at a coffee place mm-hmm. and we talk about their progress and they submit work to me.
0: That kind of How thing. much of the lessons about self publishing are about, you know, brass, tax, economics?
3: Ah, uh, see, that's where they kind of brought me in a little bit because um, I'm one of the few people that can speak to having like a even a rudimentary business plan. Uh-huh. Uh, so, my whole workshop, the theme of it is to to teach you to be self sufficient and be able to make something new, you know, with a show coming up in a week from ephemera, you mm-hmm. know, from, from scraps of stuff that you've been working on that maybe haven't brought to completion. But, uh, but yeah, I talk a lot about. You know, how to price things, uh, how not to spend too much, how I show them contracts for freelance work from mm-hmm. publishers so that they kind of, you know, get a sense of what that's going to be like. Um, and just basically tell them getting a publisher is not going to solve all your problems. You have to have like this little cottage industry built around your yeah. production, um, work with people that you, um, appreciate, pay them well, if you can barter your skills, you know, mm-hmm. for their skills, um, and be diverse. You know, I talk about having things at different price points and all that stuff.
0: Cool. So, yeah. That sounds like uh, something I imagine a lot of MFA programs sorely miss. Yeah, yeah that was
3: one. I was very uh, like I urged the department chair to just be like, we have to talk about this. We have to cover it. And their mm-hmm. last semester is largely about that, but it's more about how to put a pitch together how to network a little bit, how Mm -hmm. to talk to a publisher, that kind of thing. But yeah, I really, when I get my hands on them, that's the only time we really, I talk, I say it's like, we'll be grossly capitalistic for for a week to talk about some of this. Because I just don't want people to get bitter. I mean, I think the the thing that, the cliche about comics is that there's no money in it. And that, um, yeah, don't don't expect anything financial out of it. Um, But the truth is, you just have to be a little smart about it. Mm -hmm. You You have to really look at what's going on. Shows go to shows, you know. I think increasingly with web comics, you know, coming to prevalence, and you know, that's a really beloved way of read comics for a whole generation. Um, but doing the shows and and finding a way to monetize what you do, I think, is really important.
0: Cool. Well, the premise of this podcast is I ask different cartoonists the same 10 questions, okay, each episode. We're road testing the perfect comics interview, mm-hmm. uh, the first formal question is, what's the last comic you finished reading?
3: Oh gosh. Uh, I just read it was new to me, and I don't want to butcher his name, but I just read it this morning so let me consult. Sure. Um, yeah, mean Girls Club by uh, Ryan Heske. Heske. Yeah, um, it was great. I bought it because uh, I my comic Wovo, features a lot of pink mm-hmm. uh, and the book is, <laughs> is uh, um, Rissa risograph. In black and pink. So I oh, got wow. it from, yeah, it's a No Brown book, and I saw it from across the way. And I happened to know Tucker, um, who, who works uh, through No Brown, and it just was like immediately drawn to it. So, mm. uh,
0: they yeah. have really lovely comics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, production values, it seemed like. No, like, yeah, very, I mean, it was very beautiful.
3: High. It had a little wraparound outside cover, it had um, end papers that were a beautiful pattern. A, a, a pattern, it was like a skull with women's hair, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't have put that on my wall wallpaper
0: <laughs> uh, question number two what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise oh gosh
3: that's a hard one um, you know lately uh, and he's been the, the subject of conversation um, uh, at the The booth, the the two booths that I'm at, being next to fanographic. I think Tom Neely deserves a lot of credit for what he's doing with the humans at Image Comics. Mm -hmm. Um, He's, uh, you know, working with Keenan Keller as well. He he deserves as much credit, and uh, Christina Colantes, the uh, colorist. They all working together. The three of them just produce this beautiful comic, and it's pretty much monthly. And I know, you know, him coming from the the indie scene, winning. You know the, the Ignatz Award for the plot, um, but really, kind of as I said, more of an underground kind of comics aesthetic. For him to be able to produce like a monthly Image Comics, you know, book is it's incredible, and I think it's it's definitely has an audience and it's definitely getting attention. But I think it deserves
0: it. Mm-hmm. a lot of people who I think are even in that that monthly. Genre comic school cartooning aren't even producing on a, on a monthly basis. No, yeah, they're
3: they're doing it like way in advance, and then when it catches up, it becomes erratic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or, or you know, books don't ship quite so monthly. I think they only take like two hiatuses a year or something crazy like that. So, uh, but yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's something different that Image, you know, needs to be putting out there. So I'm glad that they you know they snapped it up.
0: Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you are. Uh, more or less still a, a Wednesday, oh, yeah. you know, weekly comics goer, which is not something you would necessarily expect of a fanographics cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the other books that keep you going to the comic shop each week?
3: Yeah, but that is kind of my dirty secret is that I do come from more of a, a Marvel DC background, at least as far as mm-hmm. what I read. But no, lately, definitely um, since I started making my own indie comic, and I can't draw that way, um, I still buy of the, the Marvel, and, uh, I, sh- I don't really get DC books anymore, I hate to say it, the new 52 I tried, and they just utterly lost me. Mm-hmm. Um, I still buy, I, I was a fan of, to, to get really uh, geeky, the, the uncanny Avengers book, the sort of blending book of the Marvel, uh, or of the Avengers and the X-Men. Um, I'm, I'm buying the Secret Wars stuff still, and some of the, uh, the spin-off titles. Uh, but largely I am buying a lot of image stuff, you know, because again, that may be a, a level, uh, above kind of what I'm doing They're They're definitely a big, bigger publisher and still considered an mm-hmm. indie, but the production on those is, is, you know, more like a Marvel or sure. PC comic, but yeah, I've been, I've been buying a lot of that. I, I like Bitch planet a lot. Um, that keeps me going in there. What else have I been getting lately? Well, let's,
0: let's get in the weeds here sure, sure. for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of smart people seem to like the work of Jonathan Hickman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates likes Jonathan Hickman. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. What What is the appeal of a Jonathan Hickman
2: comic? Yeah,
3: you know, he's one of the reasons I did trend a little bit away from the main Avengers book for a while. Um, mm-hmm. I think Rick Romender was doing The Uncanny Avengers, and he had a real love of the '90s, 80s and 90s continuity, which mm-hmm. I just wanted to see kind of come back. But yeah, Hickman, like, I, it, it is a little too, in its scale, it's a little too broad. And then... Um, slowly paced and I was not a fan of he's the one that, that trotted out the New Universe characters again, right? Yeah. I kind of so. fused them into the Avengers. I never read that when I was a kid. Um that even even as a, a preteen or a tween, I I knew the of the infamy of the the New Universe and <laughs> didn't want to didn't want to sort of pick that up. But yeah, he I did stray a little bit. He did also Fantastic Four too, right? Which right. is a hugely lauded run. Um, And I've never been a huge Fantastic Four fan So I I largely was not buying buying Secret Wars for that Uh I'm more interested in seeing him hopefully Fix the Marvel Universe (laughs) a little bit Because I'm just like, please fix The X-Men, I love the X-Men They were my favorite book, you know, in the 80s and 90s When I was really buying these things And uh, when I saw they were bringing back all this Old continuity, I was like, well Okay, clearly they're going to recombine it and put it back Together again, and they're going to cherry pick Some old school stuff and put it in with The new stuff but I bought the first couple of things and I was just like, especially the Secret Wars main book that he's writing, oh, this is just Game of Thrones glued onto the Marvel Universe. Huh. So, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm still buying it just to see how it all turns out, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the inverse of that question are question three. What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with?
3: Oh, gosh. Uh, we were just talking a bit about uh, Saga and um, how I know that's universally loved. When it came out, I bought it. I was recommending it to my students because there was a, there was a level of attention it was getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the story structure and the way um, that Fiona draws, uh, it seems, as I said, it was very accessible for some of my, my grad students uh, who were working on their first comic project. Um, but I have to say, I tapered off a little bit and stopped buying it in the late teens. Um, and it was not because necessarily there's a dip in quality or anything, but I guess it just wasn't fulfilling me the way that, you know, the, the, the honeymoon phase of any new title. Uh-huh. You, you, want, you, you start to have questions and, and they, they get, uh, you know, good breaks in between the issues, you know, so that there's a cliffhanger that makes you want to buy more. And for some reason, I just sort of tapered off on it. Um, so, yeah, that would be probably my, my thing now where I am a bit mis- – I'm, I'm actively mystified sure. at its popularity. And,
0: uh. It's funny. I think the level of praise maybe invites a backlash. Yeah, uh, you, you said universally praised, and I think to to a wide extent that's true, although you were not the first cartoonist on this podcast uh. to identify Saga as, as the most widely loved comic yeah. you can't connect with.
3: yeah. Yeah, uh, again, maybe to maybe the scope or uh, the number of characters that got added or the characters that kind of died and went away were some of my favorites. Um, So I did. I just sort of lost lost the Mm thread for some reason. Uh, To to get into the weeds again, um, Walking Dead, uh, I know, is a comic that is universally loved and, and connected with. And ever since the TV show has come out, I think the readership for the book has kind of bled away a little bit, but I still buy that. I still yeah. have my subscription to that. I, I know that in recent years, readers have felt really abused by that book, and, and there's been some monotony. It's been accused of some monotony, but I still buy it. I still talk to it while I read it. <laughs> it's, it's like a Hitchcock movie in that way. Like, I, I talk to Rear Window when I watch it, so I talk to The Walking Dead when I'm reading it, um, especially when something really traumatic happens.
0: So. Is is forward momentum still the, the main appeal to that book, would you say? The zombie story that just keeps going?
3: I think so. I mean, that is the mission statement for it, right? Robert Kirkman has mm-hmm. always said, it's the zombie movie that doesn't end. That's yeah. the frustrating thing about all the Romero movies is that they end. Um, so I think, you know, I always do keep that in mind when, when I'm reading and it. There's a lull. There seems to be like a throwaway issue because I don't read it in trades. I, I picked it up uh, as a trade and maybe the first three that got me super into it. And then I started to find a single issues after that. Um, but yeah, it's, I think there's a certain masochistic quality to being a walking dead reader. where uh-huh. You have to want that abuse from him <laughs> and you have to want to see your favorite characters sort of massacred every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So when it, when it's slow, I know he's building to something
0: like that. Sure. Question number four, you can send one comic back through time to yourself at age 14 now, this comic can come from any era mm. in history. Maybe you weren't aware of it. Maybe it hadn't been published. But what is that comic and why?
3: Gosh, how? What, you said teenage? Like,
0: sure. I mean, I fourteen, but there's you've got some latitude there. Okay,
3: maybe a little bit older. I would love to send myself Prison Pit Number One, the the first sure. Prison Pit book. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I was aware of Johnny Ryan, but was maybe not so much a fan of *Angry Youth* or the *Blackarella* comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I saw that, it got me excited because I think it's it's homoerotic in a way that really it, it interests me more than a lot of comics that are are homo, purposefully homoerotic. Sure. I think Johnny in *Prison Pit* created something that was vaguely gross out homoerotic because that's what uh-huh. you trying to freak out his fan base. Um, but uh, there's parts of that book that are to me really kind of sexy. I mean, they're not explicitly queer, but um, I would I would send it back to my sort of confused, kind of realizing who I sure. am, 17-year-old self maybe, and be like, that would have changed the thread of how I draw, probably. Because okay. I was very much reading and, and and drawing in a superhero or a quasi-superhero style at that age. And then kind of dropped it when I went to art school and didn't pick up comics again until I was – I didn't actually start making comics until I was well into my 30s. Oh, wow. Um, but if I had gotten that Prison Pit book back then, I probably would have cut to the chase and just stuck with it much earlier, maybe started making comics in my late teens, early 20s.
0: Would you think the Marvel DC stuff was the next best thing then at the time? The More often than not, yeah. like, completely unintentional homoeroticism of the Cape comics? Yeah,
3: and uh, tied directly into that, um, I picked up comics because uh, I was starting to get into my early teens and it wasn't cool to buy toys anymore uh-huh. because most of my guy friends were getting into girls. I was not getting into girls so it was still socially acceptable to buy comics so I kind of grafted that sort of delayed adolescence into comics oh wow and really got into that because I couldn't buy toys and consume toys and you know as a sci-fi fan as a superhero fan so I really started to voraciously buy comics as a way to kind of not deal with that that sure budding aspect of my my sexuality and then not to be ostracized for buying toys still also (laughs) <laughs> yeah that was my my sticking in it and i was immediately drawn to x-men because as we all know x-men is almost it's a parable for all of those things it's a parable for minorities marginalized groups and i think i i didn't quite understand that right away but you know especially after that x-men 2 movie came out uh-huh. where it has that explicit scene i kind of went back and said okay that's why i was really invested in, in these sort of things mm-hmm. it's these marginalized characters
0: so. question number five Maybe this ties into the role you've been playing in that MFA program. What's a change you'd like to see across the comics industry?
3: Gosh, you know, we're kind of... I don't want to idealize or romanticize things. I mean, I think comic creators could always stand to make more money and, and, you know, make a living off of it. But it does feel like as far as indie comics, the the technology and and the internet and getting the work out there, we're kind of in a little bit of a golden age uh, in some ways. I guess I would just like to see across the board, um, you know, maybe uh, just an increase in that. I would just like to see, um, and that this is part of why I'm in the comics program, I want to see people um, not have to invest tons of money in a a large print run Mm -hmm. um, to be able to hand make their own comics and build up, kind of the way that I came up, build up a fan base by making these very cheap to produce, but then a little more high-end zine-type comics that you can charge, you know, a little extra more for for being handmade. Um, See people kind of climb up that way a Mm -hmm. little bit. It's exciting to see Patreon and Kickstarter be able to kind of liberate people um, from having to go the traditional publisher route as well. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like things are just getting better and better. So maybe see some indie publishers take a chance on material like mine, more like Mm -hmm. mine, something that's... Really quirky, a little way outside of their wheelhouse. I mean, it's not Fanographics, you know, has been producing for comics for years. But I did feel like they were kind of taking a little chance with my thing because it's it's been described as a niche book for so long. So sure. I would like to see publishers, maybe smaller ones, maybe even some of the bigger ones, take a chance on on more niche type comics um, and get that out to larger groups of people.
0: Question number six What's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Oh, and you're an interesting case, I suppose, in this respect, in that you said you didn't start until you were into your 30s.
3: Yeah, I, i since I've started, have really been on this railroad train. So I've never, ever considered quitting. Yeah.
0: Okay. I mean, well, I, let's, let's, uh, actually, I can do this. It's my podcast. Sure, we'll swap sure. that question out this time. <laughs> uh, what took you so long?
3: What took me so long? That is, yeah, that is the the rub of it. I, you know, when I applied to uh, undergrad when I was 18, I wanted to be a graphic designer, and um, I was super into comics. I thought maybe graphic design would lead into making comics. Mm-hmm. I got into academia, and immediately that was, I could sense from the, the faculty in the program that that was hugely frowned upon, and I should not trying to parlay any kind of comics, uh, Mm. work into what I was, I was doing in that program. Um, instead I, I, I sort of split the difference and became an illustration major. So a lot of my stuff looked kind of cartoony, but, um, from there I went into grad school and that's the next level of anti-comics kind of environment. Uh (laughs) It it was a conceptual school, it was a theoretical school. I learned to be a painter, I learned to be an installation artist, uh, and comics were then even pushed further aside when I became a teacher, And I saw in my students this desire to draw manga and kind of comic-style stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell them, no, draw this still life that I have put together for you. Um, So I beat that out of people for so long. It wasn't until I I moved to San Francisco, and they do, uh, even though they don't have their own show anymore, um, they do have a vibrant comics culture there. I started to associate with a lot of comic artists. Um, in particular, I met—I uh, mentioned Tommy Lee earlier. I met Tommy Lee at mm-hmm. Ape, and um, really, we really hit it off. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I—I it, it, I think it's the environment. You have to live in an environment where um, it's sort of conducive and supportive to comics. So once I moved to San Francisco, I thought hey, maybe I can do this. But I had taken a long, circuitous route to sort of get there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why it's so late. Yeah.
0: Question number seven: What's the best advice you've heard about making comics?
3: Um, definitely, uh, to, and this goes back into uh, teaching. Don't uh, don't expect anything to come to you. Um, get out there and uh, find ways to, to get your work uh, together and, and saleable. Um, don't don't expect. You may think you're really awesome. Um, everybody does, especially out of art school. But uh, that's that's kind of an art school attitude that you've got to get rid of right away. Mm-hmm. And you have to get out there and. Uh, make fans one person at a time in some cases. So I think that that's the best advice uh, that I, and I'm not quite sure who I had heard. Maybe it was just seeing uh, fellow comic creators doing tons and tons of shows. The interesting things can only happen when you're out there uh, engaging with the public. I think the internet conversations can only go on for so long. sure um, and uh, they can only bear so much fruit. That's changing a little bit, but uh, I think there's nothing there's no, um, there's no replacement for being out there um, in the public and, and meeting people and uh, once you're out of art school, you really don't get that kind of feedback or any kind of uh, you know criticality applied to your work. Mm-hmm. I think that even if it's not said directly to you at a show, if somebody's really into something, you know it. If they're not, you're taking that stuff home. Sure. And you're wondering and thinking about why that, that wasn't successful. So I think doing, someone at, along the lines somewhere told me, do as many shows as you can. Um, that's where Intergraphics mm-hmm. got uh, uh, paid, started to, to pay attention to me and, and other publishers. I actually uh, got asked to send the Oath book to, um, I think, five publishers. Wow. Uh, so, and, then, and some of them were, you know, definitely um, contemporaries or... or uh, larger companies and fanographics so um, I, I think that that advice definitely go and do as many shows as you can is, is the best
0: well your your network is interesting with respect to building a fan base I think in that you've kind of layered different subcultures mm-hmm. Uh, atop one another. The the queer dating scene is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, rock and roll is another. Mm-hmm. Wrestling is another. How do you see that reflected back in your fan base? How does that tend to break down?
3: It's all over the place. And, and early on, some of the bad advice I got from people was, um, oh, don't bother applying to any companies or pitching to any companies. Your Your work is niche work. And mm-hmm. I realized, oh, a lot of them were other queer comics creators looking at my stuff and painting with the same brush that they were painting their own work. And kind of applying their own experience to what I was doing. They were just reducing it down to an identity. And I was like, well, okay, maybe you haven't read my book. As you said, I, I mean, the other big thing that draws people to it is cats. There's yes. And that was a complete accidental thing. It was not a marketing thing on my part. Um, I had ended a long-term relationship. I missed my cats. You know, I left the cats with him. Uh, so uh, I, they started creeping into the storyline. And then, you know, they just kind of... Exploded from there So I do I, I get at any given time At any shows I get heavy metal dudes Coming up I get a lot of women mm-hmm. um, I definitely get Sort of the bare You know Community um, Coming up They understand That it's a valentine To them So they you uh-huh. know, Early adopters And But increasingly And this has happened A lot at Especially shows Like Emerald City um, I would get uh, uh, Someone coming up To me A guy that I would Read on a superficial Level as maybe Being a gay guy uh, having me sign, uh, you know, do a doodle and sign their book, and and they would, I would say, who do you want me to sign it to? And he would say, oh, um, to me and my girlfriend, and the girlfriend would sort of emerge and be like, <laughs> I love cats. So yeah, I, I, it is. It's all over the place. It's really exciting. And when people do come to my booth, I've learned not to give them a spiel. I see what they pick up. I see what they ruminate on or, or glance at the longest, and then I start a conversation based on that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the wrestling thing too is is a is a good way to connect with a lot of different people because that is so still so popular. Sure. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, there's that Screwjob comic that I, it's up to issue two now that uh, I think Paul Mines' is name uh, puts out, and I'm doing something for that. I'm doing a wrestling story for a, a comic cool. that you know Josh Baer is in and Box Brown has done wrestling stuff for Box Brown being the preeminent wrestler. Sure. guy. Sure, The Andre the Biography, a Giant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I love being able to do stories that cater to the specific little genre mm-hmm. um, bits.
0: All right. What's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Question eight.
3: Oh, gosh. Okay. This is, yeah. Um, I, I early on realized my hand lettering uh, abilities were very poor. Mm-hmm. I hate my own handwriting. Um, so I decided I was going to use digital fonts. And uh, I got a lot of very early criticism from some of my fellow comic creators Mm -hmm. of why are you doing digital font? I like your art, but you got to do something about the digital. Um, I still wouldn't change that part, but some of the fonts I choose, I see in other places and I cringe every single time because I can't change them now. Essentially, I choose a different font for every character so they have a voice. Mm -hmm. That's, That's not a obviously a unique concept, but... Uh, I decided early on that I would try and find really hand-crafted-looking fonts to at least make it not look like Comic Sans. You know? Sure. And uh, some of those fonts I chose were horrible, and I'm stuck with them for the duration of the <laughs> now. So unless I change it, and I, maybe someone won't even notice or care, but uh, that is definitely one of the worst mistakes mm. that I've made, for sure. Uh,
0: question number nine. What do your parents think of your work?
3: Gosh, um, my parents are were never comics people. They certainly fostered um, you know, my artistic ability. My dad had a burgeoning artistic talent when he was young, and his parents they kind of just said no. And you know, they took the pencil out of his hands when he was very young. Really? And he ended up, you know, going and, and pursuing uh, you know, uh, you know, nine to five type job and raising a family. So when they finally had me, I, I'm the oldest of, of two on my brother is four years younger they really fostered that in me they kept the pencil in my hand Um, when it came time for me to go to college they said we want you to go to be an artist so um, they were hugely supportive having said that I think they look at my character and some of the imagery that comes along Mm -hmm. with it Um, especially there's a image of in uh, pink undies with a black cat over his crotch (laughs) I think they see all that and they're not quite sure what to make of it I have not sent them the fanographics book yet um, I, really, if
0: it, I too, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but they they do get a thank you, a warm thank you at the they beginning do. of that book,
3: and it, yeah, and, and very de- deservedly so. But uh, I don't think they. It's not the kind of thing that they can t- t- help talk to their friends about a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think when they talk to their friends about it, um, they they talk about me being a professor. <laughs> <in> <laughs> sure. Anything. But as the book has gotten increasingly more attention. Um, I think that they're proud of it. They always ask me how Oaf is doing by name. Um, it's uh-huh. like he's a living person. But I don't think they know how to make what to make of anything else. There's also a lot of, of current, well, increasingly getting dated, I guess, uh, pop culture references in there that I think are completely lost on them. So mm-hmm. They're supportive, but I don't, I don't think they quite get it.
0: Uh, question number ten, our final question, and I'm particular. You're the first person on this podcast who I think has drawn comics about cats. I'm okay. not basically thinking the old stuff. Mm-hmm. You've been assigned to write and illustrate Garfield, but you can change one aspect of the strip. What do you change?
3: Gosh. Um, I guess I would probably get rid of the human in it, because John has uh-huh. always been the problem for me in those, and just sort of <laughs> see how Garfield act, interacts with the other animals. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Odie, and I forget the little kitten. Nermal. normal's. I mean, that's one thing I would change. If, if there was a part B to this, I would say just add more animals. I would add more cats. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though, how you would tell that story without the human, because obviously he's a house cat. But yeah. Tom I, has always been the least interesting part of that for me.
0: Eventually you might have to account for the practicalities of yeah, maybe uh, Garfield's all, continued survival. Yeah, maybe
3: all humans are wiped out by some sort of apocalyptic thing, and, mm-hmm. and then the cats have to kind of fend on their
0: own. Sure, the that walking would, Garfield.
3: Exactly. That would be much more of my mind.
0: Yeah. All right. (laughs) We'll end on that. Thank you. Thank you.